0: Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schindler. Joining me today to talk about the '90s rivalry between the Pacers and the Knicks, I have Chris Herring from 538 and Matthew Miranda from Over at Hosting. Toasting. guys, how are you doing today?
1: Stuff with me is good. Uh, I really appreciate you having me on. So it's, uh, it's always kind of fun. To, I feel like we're all kind of taking more walks through memory lane, uh, you know, in light of the, the pandemic and and just kind of finding new stuff to riff on. But uh, I appreciate you having me. It's kind of fun for me to go back and talk about some of this
2: stuff.
0: Yeah, as uh, as I, as I stated to you guys a little bit before, this is my first time ever going through uh, the old Knicks Pacers games, other than you know outside watching the documentaries and uh, seeing highlights and everything. And so it was definitely a trip of maybe not down memory lane, but for creating new memories for me, which was kind of a. It was really interesting. Gives you a lot of different perspectives on things. Um, like for instance, I had no idea that Charles Oakley was was actually a good player. Like I knew that he made an All Star game and he was on all defensive teams, but you know I I you know I grew up. Uh, my dad always told me about how Charles Oakley was just a strong man and tough guy. And you watch him play, he was actually really good. Like it's So going back and watching through things is always exciting like that. Uh, Matthew, how are you doing today, by the way, man? I'm good. Um, it's a, I'm glad to be here. had a lot of fun with you on the Marvel Pop time. And it's
2: much more enjoyable to be doing research on the 90s Knicks than trying to break down Kevin Knox's shooting percentage um, today. And I will also <laughs> tell you that... When Pat Riley got to the Knicks, like, and I remember my father almost falling off the couch when he heard Barb Albert say this, like, Riley said right at the beginning that Oakley was the second best shooter on the team besides Ewing, and, like, we were not having that. But, like, he really did, you know, that elbow jumper, like, it was there. There wasn't much else there offensively, but that was there.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's uh it's kind of funny. There's I think I gotta look through my notes. I have like 10 pages of notes for today. Um, but he actually takes a three, and I think the 94, 95, ninety-four, ninety five does not go in, uh, but he does take one, which is intriguing. But um I think I have so many thoughts going off this. I think number one, first thing that boils down to me is how similar uh the team roster construction and team build is, and um obviously very different. I mean you have Patrick Ewing. As the centerpiece of the Knicks and Reggie as the centerpiece in, in Indiana, um, but it's you, you kind of look at both players and uh, Reggie. I think we've come more to light on him being uh, an underrated player in his prime uh, to where we kind of view him now. I mean, I think it's pretty arguable that both him and Patrick are top fifty players, and um, obviously Reggie never put up the same numbers in the regular season. But it's really interesting going back through and looking at the postseason. So luckily, Basketball Reference lets you do all these like. Awesome things like looking at head to head matchups and stuff. And so you look at like regular season, Ewing just dominated the Pacers in the regular season. Uh, Just up against Reggie, 35 and 18 all time against the Pacers in the regular season. Put up 23 and 10, 52% from the floor. And Reggie, not as good. Uh, He he shot actually less than 30% from three for his career against the Knicks, which I thought was totally wild to look at, Um, especially considering how good of a player he was.
1: Are these, then, these are regular season numbers?
0: Yeah, so that's just regular season. So that's okay. 53 games. And then in the playoffs, though, Reggie owned Patrick like, completely. And uh, obviously, there's reasons for that that we'll get into. But I mean, Reggie, like 24, 3 and 3 on 45, 40, 90 from the field. So, I mean, obviously, incredible. Uh, Patrick's field goal percentage drops down a little bit, like 19 and 9 from the floor. But uh, just as a launching point, like, I think. In my opinion, there really is never a second guy um, for either guy. there's never a there's never a pippin obviously I mean nobody has Pippin other than Jordan but as good as John Starks was and as good as Rick Smith's, I'm not the biggest Rick Smiths fan even though I'm a Pacers fan. Uh, but I mean I just feel like there was never quite that second guy for either guy in their primes.
1: you know with, with, within what you're saying, what's interesting about that is that Rick Smiths was you know Patrick. I think if, if we're talking about individual matchups, we'll probably be remembered a lot for that, that Rockets series where they didn't quite get it done. Mm-hmm. Patrick gets outplayed hands down by Hakeem Olajuwon. But if we're talking about guys that were kind of kryptonites more or less, uh, Rick Smith was really, really tough for Patrick Ewing. I mean, he, he was one of the few guys you could ever throw out there that was going to be taller than he was and heavier than, than Patrick was. Um, he had a little bit of a a jump shot and, you know, and and could do some stuff around the paint. Um, And really what was so interesting, I mean, you hit the nail on the head when you say that neither of these guys really had a a superstar, uh, you know, whether Patrick and and Reggie were superstars um, for long enough periods of time is an open question. They were certainly stars. They were certainly perennial all-stars. But, they never had anybody that was really close to being their equal offensively. Um, Rick Smith is probably the closest between those two teams. John Starks was, was less consistent than Spitz was. Um, but what's really interesting within that is that you talk to the Pacers and their folks and some of the book research and interviewing that I've done, they basically, the, the Pacers basically, saw the success that the Knicks were having and the surprising uh, seven-game series that they had with the Bulls in 92, and they basically took that and took what the Pistons had done against the Bulls and said, look, if we're going to make it out of the East, we have to be a stronger team. And that kind of led Donnie Walsh to trade Detlef Schrempf, uh, for instance, someone who was a really, really talented player and a really versatile player. Um, and the Pacers essentially went from being this up-tempo team uh, who tried to beat the Knicks the first time they played in nineteen ninety uh, three, I think. Yeah. And they, they went from being basically this really up tempo team that tried to beat the Knicks through using a full court press and kind of this, uh, fast paced style to realizing we can't win that way. And we're not really getting the most out of what we have on this roster by playing that way. And then they kind of transitioned into becoming kind of a beat them up, bruise them up sort of team the same way the Knicks had been. And so they became mirror images of each other And, yeah, I think they were trying to beat teams through their defense and occasional offense more so than trying to really outscore teams the way that um, a team like the Bulls could do. The Bulls were still fantastic defensively. But I just think that, you know, more often than not, especially with the Knicks, if they didn't have it that night on defense or if they couldn't shut somebody like Reggie Miller down, they weren't going to win because they just couldn't really produce enough points consistently to do that.
0: Yeah, yeah, 100%. And that's that's – it's really funny because I watched a ton of the 93 series. Cause that one's one of the easiest ones to find on YouTube. And as awesome as shrimp was on offense, his defense a was not great, especially, I mean, he'd probably be better today because he doesn't have to play some of the fours who were like six 11 back then. But you're like, just that was the biggest thing that stuck out to me. The, the offensive rebounding by the Knicks in the 93 series, just obliterates the Pacers off the floor. I mean, uh, out rebounded one eighty two to uh four for the entire series and, I believe it's a four – it's a, it's a gentleman this week. I think it was five games. Um, but then they add Antonio Davis the next year. And, actually, if you end up looking at it for all six series that they play in the decade, uh, it's almost dead even in rebounding. It's like 1,343 for the Pacers, 1,335 for the Knicks. So, I, the Pacers probably slightly out-rebound for the rest of the time. But, um, yeah, Antonio comes in. Derek McKee gets traded for. Larry Brown becomes coach with more of a defensive mindset um, and totally just – Re- re-changes the series. I think um, it was kind of a debate for me between the 93 season and the 90, uh, 98 season for which series was probably the least competitive. Um, because the 93 season, like like we just mentioned, obviously uh, destroyed on the glass. Um, but then the 98 season is when the Knicks are a little bit down uh, the year after Jeff Van Gundy becomes head coach. Yeah, another um...
2: – to go along with Chris's point about merit images um, and your
0: point about how close the teams
2: were throughout the 90s, one thing that I found always interesting was how much what both teams were lacking in the early 90s. Maybe style of play changed a bit, but like if you look at the Pacers in 94, um, they have Miller, they have Smits. Nobody else on the team averages double figures. The next leading scorer is Derek McKee, who's a fine player, but he's not maybe the third best player on a championship team. And the Knicks in in those years also, like, Starks had big games and then Starks would disappear. Mason might have a huge game and then not do so much. Both teams later in the decade, the Pacers with Mullen and Jalen Rose, and even somewhat I think with Mark Jackson as a more offensive upgrade at the point, and the Knicks adding Houston and Spreewell, if either of those teams could have had some of that firepower from the late 90s in the early 90s, now you're talking a completely different situation. And It always struck me that I saw the Bulls. As far as the Knicks went, the Bulls were the aspirational rival. They had what the Knicks wanted. They were clearly superior. They were something to aim for. Miami became sort of the shadow rival, where there was just so much incestuous connection. The Pacers were like the Goldilocks rival. They were the like they were similar, but they were different, and there were a lot of stylistic connections. But there were just you know their best player was this thin, rangy shooter, and the Knicks had this beast in the post, and yet. Both teams, like, if they could have just had what they had late, early, I really would have loved to have seen either the Pacers in 94, 95, or the Knicks in 93, 94 having someone who can shoot, someone who can create offense and let Miller and Ewing breathe a little bit.
0: That was what really stands out to me, because one of the things that I really want to talk about today is just whether or not Reggie and Patrick were superstars, because I I think, obviously, it's hard to quantify what a superstar is, but – um, especially looking at in Patrick's case, there was no other like there's no floor spacing. There's outside John Starks, nobody's consistently hitting or shooting a three in uh, in any of the early series. And then for Reggie, it's crazy because I think um, what I really tried to go into looking at this was like how to appreciate what I'm watching. And if you watch the Pacers' offense, it's actually really intricate because they just have so little to work with the amount of screens that Reggie comes off of and all of the back screens and back picks that happen. And first of all, I think he's one of the most uh, amazing cutters I've ever seen. Obviously he's not like very notably, not like an incredible ball handler or anything, but I just had an, an immensely good feel for when to cut, how to get to the basket and get open for passes. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it reminds me of the early Pistons were one of the first teams that I watched um, with, with Rip Hamilton, Chauncey Billups, you know, um, just, just, grinding through possessions to get an open 18-foot curl. Like, that's, that, that's, that's basically what the Pacers' offense broke down to for me because they're just working 110% to get a, an extremely difficult shot still.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, that was something that really stood out to me and still stands out to me when I talk with, uh, with people from the Knicks for the book that I'm working on. Um, put it this way, Bob Salmi, uh, who was the video coordinator – for the Knicks and was an assistant coach for them, basically, I I asked him, um, kind of expecting him to to list Phil Jackson as his answer. And I said, which coach for you was the most difficult to kind of read what play calls they had and what play calls they were using to then use those on video, but also to help scout as an advanced scout. Uh, Him and then Jeff Nix, I asked the same question of another assistant coach that did their advanced scouting. And everybody always says it was Larry Brown, hands down. Um, And that was because the team had so little offense that it could kind of create on its own that they were relying consistently on their play calling to get stuff open and to free stuff up for Reggie and other people. So I I think that's interesting because really I I think the Knicks kind of at times lacked that. Um, There were times that the Knicks kind of had some infighting on their team because so much of their offense went through Patrick. Then it was very clear, okay, Patrick's our first option. If we can't get that, We kick the ball to Starks, and we run a pick and roll for him, and then we just do it over again until we get something open. And that was kind of all they had, more or less. And then really, if we're being totally honest, because of how inconsistent Starks could be at times, offensive rebounding was like their next best form of offense uh, for the Knicks. And that's why I think that Pacers series became so much more evenly matched after that first postseason they played against each other, because then the Pacers were playing the same style and taking that off the – basically off the scoreboard for the Knicks. So, um, yeah, there's no question that the Pacers worked really hard to get open shots. Reggie Miller, uh, it's why the game shifted so wildly when Miller was able to kind of go on a roll because that was so much of the Pacers' offense and it literally would shift entire games, entire playoff games. And, uh, you know, it's crazy to think about, but, you know, Starks, we talk all the time about how Starks had, uh, you know, was listed at being what was it, 6'5", when really he yeah. was probably closer to like 6'2 or 6'3". And I want to say, what was Reggie, 6'7"? Six, six, yeah. Um, and, I mean, so he's even taller than Michael Jordan. We always think about Starks guarding Michael. Uh, Reggie was a lot taller. And so you, you take that and you take the fact that he's moving so much. Just, he just would have been a nightmare to guard and was a master at coming off the of screens, um, along with the fact that the Knicks had a real – challenge in trying to just kind of pin down exactly what the Pacers were doing or how to make sense of what their play calls were compared to their other opponents because the Knicks really there for the last three years of Pat Riley's tenure were the best defense in the league statistically efficiency wise each year for uh, three seasons so I mean they they had issues with the Pacers no question even trying to just defend them was difficult even though the scores weren't extremely high from one game to the next.
0: Yeah and I think two things off that right away. Uh, you mentioned pick and roll John starts. Uh, one of the craziest things to me that I'm just totally not used to from watching the league the last couple of years, um, the hedges on ball screens were crazy. Like I, I see, you see Dale Davis and Charles Oakley and Patrick Ewing go like five feet beyond the key to hedge, hedge a ball screen. And the, the roll man hardly even goes to the rim. It's weird. I, I, I was just like, I, I, I knew that pick and roll wasn't as big back in the day, but like, Watching how different it is compared to now is just night and day. Like, that was it was crazy for me to watch. Um, and then also with John Starks, just being a Pacers fan, and uh, the first real team that I fell in love with was the uh, 11 to 14 Pacers. And uh, watching John Starks just reminded me so much of Lance Stevenson uh, early <laughs> in his tenure with the Pacers. Uh, you know, you got the on-court fieriness. Um, I, I, I feel like every single game there was something that if he did it now, he would have gotten – like, probably a one or two game suspension. Like, uh, he kicks the scoreboard, uh, I think, in the 95 series. He kicks the scoreboard after a ball goes out of bounds. And I was like, that's a, that's a fine. And like, every single thing that I saw, but he was just so fun to watch play. And I was like, obviously, I was never a great basketball player or anything, but I, th- I was texting one of my friends today, and I was like, wow. You know, I'm watching a ton of old 90s uh, Pacers and Knicks games, and I'm like, if I'm the embodiment of any player, it's John Starks. I'm always mad about something. <laughs> I'm a Napoleon complex and I can't hit a free throw to save my life when it counts. So, <laughs> sorry, I had to bring that one in a little bit, but uh, yeah, was, was just some of the quick takeaways I had off that.
2: There were um, two in, in in kind of getting ready for this and, and reading and rewatching video, two things about Starks that have stood out to me relating to what we just talked about. One was that every, I, I'm struck and Chris just talked about this with the Nick offense every single close nick playoff game that came down to a last possession, it is always Ewing setting a pick for Starks, Starks going right. like, And it's funny because you see in 93 when the dunk happens, B.J. Armstrong guesses wrong, Starks goes right, he has a clear path, he dunks it. You see as the years move on, Indiana, other teams start recognizing, like, like at the end of Game 7 against Indiana in 94, Starks, again, goes right, goes baseline, but now he doesn't have that clear path that he did against Chicago. Um, There's other games in 95. The Knicks had two games um, with Indiana that came down right to the end. There was just no variation. Like, at home, you knew, okay, Starks going right. So I'm struck by that. I'm also struck, uh, Mark, by what you're saying about just differences in how the game was played and even officiated. When I was reading up on... 93 and the starks headbutt with reggie miller that happened this was still best of five so that was when the knicks were up to nothing pacers won that game i knew the knicks won the next game they took the series i know that game i think went to overtime but i was struck that starks was not suspended like he headbutted reggie miller and i don't think it's the world's worst headbutt but like today if you even fake a headbutt like there's going to be like you know a, a senate inquiry and starks is playing the next game It's amazing to me the things that you could do. We talked on the last pod about the time Reggie Miller got in the fight with Michael Jordan, and Michael Jordan rakes him across the eyes, punches him, and he doesn't even get called for a foul. And John Starks headbutts Reggie Miller in a playoff game, and like, all right, send him back out for game four. I'm always struck by just how different everything was then.
0: Yeah, no, it was was crazy different. And um, it was also really funny, too, because – obviously I mean I've seen the bad boys Pistons play and um I, I watched a lot of the early 2000s games as well um but you-, you just hear talked about with like I feel like a lot of people always kind of rake on the uh Pacers Knicks rivalry a little bit because was always low scoring uh I-, I think it was in the 98 series when the uh yeah it was either 98 or 99 uh, when they set the um playoff foul uh record I think it was 61 fouls in a game um but at the same time, I didn't really find there to be too much stuff that was really even that flagrant or, like, uh, blatantly bad. Like, I mean, obviously, it's a little bit more physical than it is today. But at the same time, it's within the confines of the way that the NBA was letting you play then. Like, I, I don't really think that there's anything that you can uh, bitch about with that too much. Uh, so I've never really understood that um, in some c- circumstances. Except there was one, I think, uh, Derek Harper just about rips Dale Davis's arm off on an open breakaway dunk. And that was, like, the only one that, that I think was a deserving flavor. But um, it, it's just it's, – it, I totally agree. It's just really funny going back and looking at some of the differences.
1: There, uh, so it's funny as we're talking about this and some of the research I've had to do. Um, if you guys know my work well enough probably. I, I'm, I'm really big on numbers. It, it's hmm. been weird to, like, retrain my brain not to use as many of them for a, a big project, like, and like a big commercial product, like a book where you're not trying to overload people with numbers and you're trying to tell more of a narrative story. But um, in doing that, I think I found in that first matchup that the Knicks had with the Pacers in the playoffs, when um, when Starks headbutted Reggie, they did not suspend him, but they did fine him. And it, it was the fourth time he'd been suspended, or not suspended, but fined within like an 11-month span uh, within that calendar year. So he'd been fined left and right, uh, one of them involved, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, a flagrant foul on Kenny Anderson who fell and broke his wrist, which was a really controversial one where I think the Nets wanted Starks to step to sit out the rest of the year because that was what was going to happen to Kenny Anderson with his injury. And, you know, he's a pretty big part of their team. Um, but the thing that stands out to me when we talk about this rivalry too, um, I I really wanted a sense of like how can I get – concrete numbers on flagrant fouls because that, on some level, kind of defined that Knicks team. You know, when you think about what set them apart, they were extremely physical. The Pacers obviously became extremely physical as well. And so I really wanted to try to, like, obviously I'm not going to go back and watch every game, although I feel like I've done projects like that in the past with my stories. But I'm not going to do that for an entire era, um, and I'm not going to do it just for the sake of two or three sentences in a book or something like that. So I needed to find a way to just get hard data on it and totally forgot that there was this guy named Harvey Pollack who um, put together these annual stat books, where he was the guy that wrote the 100 on that piece of paper for Wilt Chamberlain to hold up after his 100 point game. So he's he was kind of like the longest standing stat keeper uh, from when the NBA was first founded, and he put together these booklets every year on these really unusual stats. And they started tracking. I don't think the league started tracking it officially, but Harvey was keeping the numbers on flagrant foul totals, and so I went back and found those and have those for the book research that I'm doing. Um, And it's really fascinating to look at, like, who leads the league in flagrants. The first season that they counted, I want to say it was LaSalle Thompson who later became a Knicks assistant coach, but at first was with the Pacers. And so I think he had something like six, and he led the league that year. And Oakley had, like, three or four, but he was, like, very high up on the list. The next season, I want to say Oakley had nine And, like, the next closest player had four. And there were a bunch of teams that didn't even have nine. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think he had more flagrants than, like, 15 or 16 teams by himself. And then what happened when he started talking about how the fouls didn't look as flagrant toward the end of that era, a big part of it was that after Oakley and so many other people started flagrant fouling people that often, the league started to finally uh, legislate it a little bit differently and said, Look, we're going to start counting the number of flagrant points you get, and we're going to separate the flagrants into ones and twos. And so, if you get a certain number of points, you're going to get suspended. And so, I think that served as a deterrent. What they actually talked about at 1.2, I think because of the Knicks and the Pacers and the way they played, they threatened to suspend coaches if their players got too many flagrant balls as well. And obviously, Pat Riley was not <laughs> in favor of that. Um, and actually, surprisingly, Phil Jackson. Uh, said he thought that that would be too harsh a penalty, even though Phil was a, a huge complainer when it came to the idea of the Knicks and obviously the Pistons before that. But um, these teams were as physical as, as really any other teams in the league, uh, particularly when they played against each other. They had their their set of rules that they weren't going to let people come down the lane. Um, and But I do think that it looking a little bit more friendly, if you could really use that word, towards the end of the 90s is because there were so many penalties put in place in the mid to early nineties because of how they were playing.
0: Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I, I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that too much. And um, I, I still am learning like all about like the rules and how everything's changed. And uh, it's, it's interesting too, because it, it's still that, that that style of play bleeds over into the two thousands a little bit as well. I mean, because immediately when you're talking about Oakley with the f- flagrants, I think about uh, Rashid Wallace's tech streak in, uh, in the early two thousands. What was, it? I think he had 40, Forty-one year, so every other game, yeah, it's forty-one. Every other game, he's getting tech. I can't even imagine watching that today, but it's, it's hilarious to, to kind of look back on a little bit. Lost um, place. Um, oh yes. So another thing that I actually thought was really interesting. Um, I had, I mean, I'd heard his, heard his name before, but I I'm like really big on. I'm not like quite as good at understanding stats, but I love just like. I can lose three or four hours going on basketball reference and just pouring over somebody's advanced stats and their stats in general. And uh, one guy who's really stuck out to me is Anthony Mason. Um, I had never really, I mean, I'd heard his name before, but I didn't really know anything about him coming into this and watching him play and looking at, at, at his, his, his deep dives. And um, obviously looking at his story as well, It's a very awesome story and seems like he was an awesome dude. Uh, unfortunately, no longer with us, but, uh, looking at him and watching him play, he re- obviously, I think this will be maybe taken out of terms a little bit, but he reminds me a lot of Draymond Green. Uh, obviously, he's not the transcendent force that Draymond is, but just like in terms of a guy who's maybe a little bit undersized, playing a bigger position, could handle the ball actually surprisingly well. Uh, he ran some sets and was a really good passer for his size, especially at that time. Um, could defend pretty much any position. And, I mean, he was a decent finisher, very good offensive rebounder. Um, and actually, As, a, as an, I think he's an all-star when he goes to Charlotte in the eventual trade. But his career was just so interesting for me to look at. And, and watching him play in these games as a, as a just kind of super sixth man was, was really interesting.
2: There's always this chimeric quality to Mason um, in that he's very much of his time. If you look at his – like he led the league in minutes for like two or three years in a row – up around 43, 44 minutes. The guy never seemed to get tired. He, could. he was the rare case of someone who could literally defend all five positions. You could stick him on a point guard. When they would play the Rockets or the Magic, he would defend, in stints, Olajuwon and O'Neal. But it was also, like you say, I think Draymond is an interesting comparison. Um, Mason, not the same shooter, although he played overseas before he came to the CBA, I think in Turkey and Venezuela. And I think, if I recall, He led the Turkish League in three-point shooting one year. I don't know what that really means, but I seem to remember that. But a guy who, um, when Don Nelson took over the Knicks after Riley left for Miami, there was um, a very hot controversy for a while because Nelson wanted to expand Mason's role in the offense and start to run kind of a point-forward system through Mason. And if you know anything about Patrick Ewing, that's not happening. Um, But Mason was a really, really talented guy and i've heard more um in the last couple of years and i never thought about it at the time but i've heard more nick fans now starting to wonder like if we could played mason more than oakley back then would things maybe have turned out differently they're different players um, and i don't want to undersell what oakley did because for what that nick team was trying to do Oakley served a purpose but mason could do a lot of different things and um, I think he would have been a fascinating guy to see play today because I think he would have been – what he did on both sides of the ball, um, if you put him on a good team, he's going to be a multiple all-star. Back then, he was more of like, oh, great sixth man, nice change of pace. But he was, he was highly gifted.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it was a strange – it's so strange too because like you, you mentioned that he was an all-star. So when you look at it, I'm pretty sure Oakley, Starks, and Mason were all all-stars exactly one time. Yep, And I want to say, I know Oakley was a replacement for somebody one year. Like he, and, and that game was in Cleveland, and Oakley got like one or two days notice that he was going to play or be picked for the team as a replacement. He took a bunch of reporters to his house um, to show them around because the game was in his hometown. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Starks made it on his own. I think maybe Mason was a replacement too. And so these were guys that like made the All-Star team by the skin of their teeth exactly once – um and the idea that we keep saying that Ewing never really had that second star with him. On a technical level, yes, he had all stars, but not really. Yeah. Uh, but Mason was probably uh somebody was uh kind of they weren't debating me, but you know, just kind of tweeting with me the other day about um how we view those Nick teams from those years and um you know, whether or not they get too much credit for simply having been one of Jordan's biggest rivals during that time, and, and whether they're kind of glamorized because of that. And I don't think it's that necessarily. I think really it's that the Knicks haven't been consistently good since then. Um, and that really only one set of teams over a 50-year span since they last won a title has been consistently good, and it was those teams. That's what I would say. But i And so it turned into a conversation about whether they would translate in today's NBA or whether they were just kind of uh, fun and scrappy and, you know, the Knicks fans really loved them. I I think it's a fair question. I think Ewing would be great in absolutely any era that you put him in. I think nowadays he probably would stretch his range out to the three-point line. Um, But I think Mason would probably see the biggest boost in terms of how his game would be viewed from those teams because he was already doing stuff that guys are being asked to do now. Uh, He was not a great shooter. He had a really ugly-looking jumper, had a really ugly-looking free throw, shot uh, where he actually didn't even have both hands on the ball as he was shooting. Um, But as far as his ball handling, um, having talked to his college teammates for what I'm working on, they told me that he took a lot of pride in, um, and basically he didn't want scouts to know whether he was right or left handed, even though he was left handed because he wanted to be able to handle the ball so fluid fluidly that they wouldn't know. Um, He was someone who, as, as Matthew said, um, you know, this guy would run on the treadmill for hours at a time so that he could have the stamina to play 43, 44 minutes again, game and still complain about not playing enough. Um, you know, <laughs> issuing what I've heard to be basically a death threat to Don Nelson under his door in the form of a letter saying, like, if you pull that shit again, I'm going to kill you, which did not go over so well and left Don Nelson really confused because he's like, I already play you more than anybody else on this team and let you handle the ball all the time. So just a really unusual guy. I, I frankly think from having reported on those years now uh, for the book, I think he was actually the most interesting character, um, probably like kind of a tie between him and Pat Riley. But of the players, I think he was the most interesting player and kind of unpredictable figure on those team, bar none. The stories I've heard about him are like ones that you have to call two, three, four people to verify just because you're like – This can't be true based on what this one person is telling me. But he was just really fascinating. I think uh, his career, um, the sort of defense he played is what can't get lost and all. He was really unusual offensively, but he was really, really good defensively. And, um, you know, I I think at one point Michael Jordan said that that was the sort of player they needed and, um, you know, like a Mason type um, that he didn't really have interest in. He basically thought all. The Nick players were kind of flawed in one way or another, getting too old. But he's, he thought there was something in Mason, and Mason was like, "I don't want to play over there. Like, I want to beat him. I don't want to play with him." And he just—I yeah. think that's what Nick fans loved about the guy. Absolutely loved about him was that he—he he kept punching kind of above his pay grade. As far as he was—I mean, this was someone that didn't even play him or Starks four years of high school basketball. Between the two of them, I think they played four years of high school basketball. Um, but just a really unusually gifted guy who uh, made it work and scrapped until he could make it work and played through multiple leagues until he could get back to the NBA and make it work. Yeah. See, like that's what I totally
0: love about these teams because I think um, that, well, obviously Reggie and and Patrick kind of, I don't want to say get lost in history, but they're sometimes viewed very differently because oh, they, they didn't win. And I I've written multiple pieces about how I think winning is sometimes overrated and, Um, We need to look more, not necessarily say like you have to look at individual careers, but you can't forget about some of these awesome things that happen just because somebody didn't win a title. I mean, you have a one in 30 chance of winning a title and that's just like, you know, on a team basis. I mean, uh, MJ had probably much more than a one in 30 chance of winning a title when he was playing. But um, I mean, these teams, like, especially looking uh, at like you were just talking about with the Knicks. I mean, yes, like what they're. I always get into arguments with people on on Twitter about like, uh, well, they didn't technically have have star teammates. And they're like, well, look at all these all-star teams. And I'm like, well, look at, you know, who they replaced in the all-star game or this or that or anything like that. And I think context is so important. And um, th- that's what just is so exciting about these teams. It makes it so fun to watch. Um, obviously, it changes a little bit towards the end with, with more, uh, you would maybe call star players coming in. Um, but just like the sheer determination of both teams. And it sounds cliche to talk about, but I mean, it's true. I mean, like Dale Davis wasn't really an all-star. I mean, Dale Davis was an incredible player in his own right, but he wasn't an all-star. I mean, you can say the exact same thing about Charles Oakley and maybe Anthony Mason. I mean, those guys just played their guts out and they were incredibly fun to watch and they gelled with their teammates really well and they just made for fun basketball. Um, and it's just different, you know. It's it's very different from, from the Bulls. I think one thing that really fascinates me about the NBA – um, is the team building aspect because you look at things and how things are done differently, and uh, obviously there are a lot of teams that want to. Everybody wants to be a championship team. You know, there's, there's no fronting that, uh, but you can't be a championship team in the same way. I mean, obviously the, the Bulls, the way that they did it. I mean, if you have the best player in the game, you have the opportunity to to get guys like Scottie Pippen and, and Ron Harper. I mean, Ron Harper is one of the best free agent signings in in in. NBA history that nobody ever mentions because he has such a big statistical decline. But um, I mean, he was important as hell for those teams. And, uh, but then the Pacers and Knicks, they had to completely build in different ways because they don't have the same front office. They don't have the same player personnel. It's just, um, and the way that they try and do it is, is just fascinating to me. Also another thing about Anthony Mason that I forgot to mention uh, I don't remember which series it is because I can't find it in my notes right now, but he he uh, has nicks shaved into the side of his head one of the series, and I thought that was the coolest thing ever. I loved that. I think that's 94. Um, that sounds about right because I'm pretty sure they win that series.
2: He also just, uh, Mason in 93, um, there was a lot of anxiety I, I was struck. I had forgotten this. I remember one of the reasons Reggie Miller's fourth quarter in game five in 94 was so striking from a nick perspective was that, the Pacers were not a team that, that I, like, I, as a, as a kid at that point, I had no concern about the Pacers. And I didn't realize till today, when the Knicks went up 2 nothing in 94, if you count playoffs in regular season, at that point, they had won 15 of their last 18 games against the Pacers. Like, I had no concern about Indiana. Even when the Pacers tied it 2-2, to in that game five, the Knicks are up, like, 12 going into the fourth. Everything seems like it's on schedule. And then, you know, Miller just explodes, and, and now everything's different. But in 93, when Starks headbutts Miller, even though he wasn't suspended, um, the Pacers had played the Knicks pretty tough in game one. Um, They win game three. There's a bit of anxiety where, like, you don't want to go to a deciding game five, especially as the higher seed and give this team hope. Um, And it was Mason in game four, which was a close win. Um, He shoots, like, 11 or 13 from the field. He has 25 and 10. That was very – an enormous performance at a time for a young team that had still not – totally established themselves. And they had a nice series, you know, against Chicago the year before. They had beaten Detroit. But the Knicks had never really been at that point, like, the heavy, the team that was favored and could just come through and finish off a weaker opponent. And Indiana, like like you, like you said earlier, they were stylistically different. And they were – you know, Shrimp was a great scorer. Miller had a great series. Mason stepped up, and, and it was really Mason who had the decisive performance that put the Pacers to bed – and until Miller's fourth quarter the following season, I think kept the, the feeling of like, okay, Chicago's a rival. That's it. We don't need to worry about these Pacers yet. And then Miller blows all that to hell in game five.
0: Yeah, so that's what I want to get into next. The 95 uh, semifinals uh, is when this really becomes the rivalry. Obviously, 94 is great, seven game series, but 95 is when the Pacers are finally able to take one. Um, and actually when I was writing down about the 95 series, that's when you really, for me, when it started popping off, how many screens Reggie is running through and more importantly, how many screens John Starks is running into, uh, because he's the primary guard on Reggie most of the time. Uh, I said, this is very similar to it's instead of Rob Zombie's house of a thousand corpses, it's Larry Brown's house of 1000 screens. Uh, (laughs) That's what popped off for me a little bit, but, um, it's, it's, it's a really interesting series because of the first game, uh, Rick Smiths is just crazy, goes off 34-7, for seven, jams on Ewing right at the beginning of the game, uh, never looks back, and then he fouls out. And then uh, you have um, Charles Oakley has one of it's probably not super remember, but he has one of the best out-of-bounds saves and immediate timeouts that I've ever seen in a game. <laughs> uh, and just incredible body control to make that happen. But then Derek McKee fouls out. So Rick Smiths, Derek McKee both out, game one. Uh, So three of the best six players are out. One of the other Pacers starters fouls out. I can't remember who right now. I don't have it written down. But three of the Pacers starters foul out. Um, So Starks goes up, obviously. Two free throws up 103-97, 25 seconds left. Uh, I think my biggest question is, did Reggie push off of Greg Anthony?
1: Yes. I mean, at least some. (laughs) Whether it was enough on its own to really say that was why it happened I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's interesting. The backstory with all that, um, and I think maybe they go over it in the 34th 30, 30 If not, I can't remember. Um, there are so many things about that play that are totally messed up. Obviously, there's the question of whether Reggie shoved Greg Anthony. He obviously at least nudges him, oh, yeah. which when someone's running forward and then you give them that extra momentum. It's the same reason that when someone's up in the air – on a layup or a dunk that you can't shove them from behind because they're already moving in that direction at a, at a high speed and they're, and they're more vulnerable that way. So, no, it's not the same thing, but it's similar. Um, so, yes, he absolutely nudges him. Whether that alone was enough to make him fall, I'm not sure. Maybe he was already falling. Um, but what was really messed up about that play to begin with, Anthony Mason is inbounding the ball. Um, normally that would probably be Derek Harper or someone different or maybe even Greg Anthony himself. Doing it, Derek Harper, I think, had gotten uh, two technicals earlier in the game. Derek Harper got
0: ejected earlier in the game. So he's gone,
1: and he's watching all this happen. I I, I talked with someone from the Knicks who was back there with him in the locker room since he was ejected, and Derek Harper's going crazy watching this happen because he's like, I'm supposed to be out there, and I can't help the guys. And then that turnover happens where Derek Harper either would have been inbounding or would have been inbounded too. Um, And so that happens. And it just, the, the whole thing was just a total mess. In, incredibly stunning. Um, we talked earlier a little bit about Starks not being able to hit free throws in a key moment. Um, and he's explained it, you know, that 30 for 30, basically. He's still so stunned by what happened with Reggie. And then the, everybody was kind of stunned. I mean, the fact that Starks even went to the line immediately after that, I think Sam Mitchell fouled Starks on purpose, if I remember correctly, because he didn't realize that Reggie's three had tied the game. So he thought they were still behind. So Starks goes to the line on kind of a fluke. Um, And even though that happens, misses them both. And and still the Pacers have a chance to win. So it's just that whole sequence, like everything about it went wrong. And I think really it it took me a few years of covering the Knicks and, and interacting with their fans to realize kind of why so many of them are so pessimistic. But there's so much little stuff that, like, where everything would have to go wrong for them to not have the best outcome. But there have been so many instances where it seems like everything went wrong for them to not have that outcome. And that stands out as a, a really key one, which, I mean, on some level, losing that series and, and not making it back to the finals and winning that year, I don't know if you could say that was – the cause of a lot of other stuff unraveling, but Pat Riley walked out after that series. Um, and, and, you know, there, there were a lot of rumors, and I know I've, I've certainly kind of gotten a lot of reporting to confirm a lot of it, that he kind of already had his mind a little bit somewhere else because Miami had already kind of floated the idea of, of coming down there. And so uh, even as, as soon as that series was over, within an hour of that series ending, was already talking to a friend about Setting up the situation in Miami because he knew he was done and he was just really tired of the situation in New York. But that whole situation, when you think about how critical that play becomes and how critical that outburst from Reggie becomes, it, it I mean, it set the Knicks back a long way um, because, you know, if only because of the fact that maybe if they win that series and maybe they can convince Riley to stay, um, that maybe it, it turns out differently for them. But it was just a, a mess that they didn't win that game and a mess that they did not win that series.
2: Yeah. Adding to the – sorry, just to add to the the levels of hell in that sequence, not only does all that go wrong, but then when Starks misses the second free throw, Ewing gets the rebound. Ewing tries to go up with a follow, misses, and then for God knows what reason, the Knicks, who must be completely frazzled, then foul Miller, who's like a 110% free throw shooter. So, like, (laughs) literally – 12 things have to go wrong, and every single one of them does. It's still hard, man. It's still hard.
0: Yeah, that's what I was just about to hit on that. I think uh, I was going back and, and reading a little bit, and so much of, of that series being lost gets put on John Starks, which is crazy to me because you look at that game, and I'm not trying to put it on anybody else, but Patrick Ewing had a terrible game. I think he shot, he shot like 28% from the floor in the first game, and he took like 20 shots. We got to the free throw line like five or six times. Um, so, and obviously like you just mentioned, he misses that putback, like just has a little bit too much on it and bounces right back out. Um, so I always think that it's, it's almost like with um, the Cavs in, in 2018 when Jr. obviously, I mean, he, he dribbles out when he, that that's a whole other debate for a different podcast, but people forget George Hill missed the free throws. If George Hill hits the free throws, it's, it's tie games going to overtime. It's not, it's not game over, um, so yeah, it's just wild how history gets rewritten without having anything written on top. You just forget parts. It's it's crazy how that works out. Um, but then that it, it's interesting because obviously the Knicks are never able to really regain momentum. Um, just watching the next couple games, it's just kind of cl- like I, I don't know. I think it's pretty clear that um, losing that first game is just so immense. Like not. You everything Like you mentioned, Chris, everything just had to go wrong, and everything did go wrong. And there's just no way to really recover from that. You, you play a really, really darn good game, and you just come up short. Um, and that's so tough to come back from. And then that just jettisons kind of both teams into a really awkward phase of, of remolding their teams a little bit. Uh, so obviously Pat Riley leaves, Don Nelson becomes coach, and he ends up getting fired, and J- JVG comes in. And then that offseason, the Pacers, they go 52-30 and 30 the next season, I believe. Um, but then after that, Larry Brown resigns during a losing season. Uh, they miss the playoffs. And they trade Mark Jackson, which ends up netting Jalen Rose, which is huge later on, obviously. Um, but th- like I said, they completely miss the playoffs. They trade back for, for Mark Jackson before the deadline to try and uh, make the playoffs again. does not work. But uh, Larry Bird ends up stepping in in place of Larry Brown. Um, and then we get to 98. I mean, the, the Knicks have a pretty solid run that time, too, obviously. I mean, Jeff Van Gundy makes them, I believe, a 50 win team in, uh, in 96. And, or no, not 96, 97. And then we get to the 98 Eastern Conference semifinals. And, ooh, yeah, I think this one's tough. Uh, I think this one was more competitive than the 93. Round, but it's different because, you know, after really diving into the Pacers, this is probably the best Pacers team of all time outside uh, the Brawl team um, in terms of talent. But this team just, like, uh, was stacked. I mean, this is just a total killer Pacers team. I believe they had the number one offense that year. Um, and Larry, Bur- Larry Bird just totally remolds the team. They become, instead of being one of the top defensive teams in the league, they're still up there. But this team becomes just lethal offensively.
1: Well, what's funny about what you're saying, too, is that the Knicks, um, by that point, they really feel as if they have, you know, to them, you talk to a lot of those guys now, and I, I think I know which, which year you're talking about. The Knicks would make the argument that that was one of their best teams, too. Um, the idea that they basically had um, finally kind of cured some of the offensive problems that they had for all those years. They go out and they, they totally revamp a lot of things. And actually in 96, what was interesting about that offseason, season, um, the Knicks had actually kind of given some thought to trying to sign Reggie Miller as a free agent. They also gave thought to trying to sign Michael Jordan. I mean, it's not that you have to give thought to something like that, but, you know, they maybe thought there was a little bit of a window there and they at least had a conversation with this agent about what they could offer and how they could structure it. Um, They obviously go get Allen Houston instead. Um, They go out and they swing a a huge deal for Larry Johnson, who I want to say might have had the biggest contract in the NBA at the time. Mm -hmm. And really thinking about that and looking at that, um, the Knicks thought that that was maybe the best combination of both offense and defense that they had ever had um, with those teams. They finally had some offense to go with Patrick where it's not just him with Houston and, and, uh, and Larry Johnson, but they've also still got a defense that nobody's looking for. They're playing. And what kind of, you know, I think again, where seemingly everything goes wrong for the Knicks, at least in their own opinion, uh, they get a situation there where they basically feel like they are ready to roll. And then they, they have the situation against the heat uh, with all the suspensions and, and the idea that, what was it? Six players in that series got suspended and five of them were Nick players. And so it's interesting that both the Pacers and the Knicks kind of feel like this is one of the best teams they've ever had. Definitely one of the best teams of that era and stuff just goes wrong. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's certainly something where you go down the line. It's either that team that people think was the best one the Knicks had or the one where they lost the, the Charles Smith year that they lost. But, um, Again, you know, I feel like there are a lot of parallels between those Pacers and Knicks teams, and I think that's one of them as well.
0: Well, yeah, especially with uh, – it's it's crazy looking at it because I, I don't know if it was uh, – I don't remember exactly. I know that Larry Johnson's back got injured, but he has a very steep drop-off when he comes to the Knicks. He's still obviously an above-average above starter, but he goes from being one of the brightest young players in the league to um, a guy who's maybe a third or fourth best player on a, on a really good team. Um, and so you totally get – not at all at all what you're thinking. And they, they deal Anthony Mason for Larry. And obviously Larry was a huge offensive upgrade in terms of floor spacing um and self-creation, but um definitely lose a step on the defensive end there. And it's a massive contract to have filling up with uh with with what Larry was providing. And obviously not on him, but then also um Patrick starts having uh, his own heap of injuries on top of that. Um I believe he has a wrist injury, only plays twenty six games that year. Um And that's the – mark. I believe that's the Marcus Camby or that's the next year? Year before. Yeah, year before. Uh, He got hurt
2: against Milwaukee. And uh, to your mirror image idea, again, this weird Nick Pacer symmetry, Ewing's out almost that whole year after. uh, He goes up for an alley-oop in Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. Andrew Lang fouls him, breaks his wrist. He's out. He comes back in 98 in the series against Indiana. He's out the whole season, but he returns against the Pacers. And then the next year, 99, the Knicks magical season, Ewing's there all year until game two against the Pacers when his Achilles finally gives out and then he's gone. Um, it was always very, like, the sad symmetry to the late 90s Knicks Pacers. Different than Knicks Heat, where, like, they didn't always have their full rosters because of suspensions. Um, but Ewing never those last couple of years, until 2000, um, never seemed to be able to just be there full time against the Pacers, and I think that would have been interesting because uh, him and Smiths went at each other so many times over the years. Um, it was fun to watch two guys who knew each other that well and took what they could take. And I don't
0: know. One thing that I, I definitely want to talk about because I've heard about it so much in my lifetime, uh, and especially just going back through these games and watching, I think the idea of the Ewing theory is just—I no, I, I don't, I don't agree with it at all. I think the idea that the Knicks were better off without Patrick Ewing is is abominable. Um, especially because even if he wasn't shooting well, it's so similar to Reggie uh, because even Reggie could be shooting, you know, Oh, for 13 in a game and he's still going to have, uh, he's going to get hedged on a ball screen. He's going to have two guys on him. And it's the same thing with Patrick. I mean, you watch those games, every single game that, that Patrick's playing in, he gets double and triple team constantly. And that opens so much out for other people. I mean, as good as John Starks was, um, he gets so many of his open threes against the Pacers because there are two or three guys on Patrick. Um, and so I think that I, that's just my, my opinion on it and my take.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's no question. I, I think you can, you can look at isolated points here and there. And I think the other thing, too, um, the Ewing theory became more viable, if you want to call it that, when you look at the later part of that era. I think mostly because he was old. I mean, yeah, like – He's like, like 35
0: and, and, at this point.
1: You think back to what Matthew was saying before about how Ewing wasn't really big on the idea of not being the focal point of the offense. I mean, Don Nelson, for all the critiques I think he,
0: you know, maybe deserves – his ideas weren't wrong.
1: The idea of trying to decentralize Ewing as the main option all the time as he was starting to age was probably a good idea. Most people would view that as a good thing, particularly now as we talk about resting guys more and kind of not putting as much on their bodies. Um, the idea of putting a point forward in place and letting the offense run around him and freeing up Derek Harper, who was one of the few guys on your team that could actually shoot to be be more of a spot-up guy. That was a smart idea. It wasn't that his ideas were bad. It was that he didn't really frame them well and didn't really communicate them well to the players. But the whole reason that you wanted to decentralize your offense away from Ewing some was to basically kind of phase him out as your star. And – Honestly, when they were playing well without Ewing, it was because they were playing an up-tempo style that you could not play with Ewing out there because he was old. And so I don't think that it's necessarily saying that Patrick wasn't as good as we thought he was. I think it was that Patrick was old. No one's as good as they are when they're that old as they are when they're young. And when you can play a totally different style without that player on the floor, in part because they're old. I mean, it makes sense. I don't think it's that difficult to I just don't think that... The Ewing theory is not something that would have held up in the first half of that decade. I think it became a little bit more true towards the end of it when, frankly, he was not as good as he was because he was just aging. And, that's, and I think that's fine. But I, I think to make anything more of it than that is silly, given that um, I mean Patrick was really viewed as potentially being the next Bill Russell when he came out of college. Um, and the idea that you know, Russell is known for how great he was on defense – Um, and as a rebounder, Patrick so far exceeded what Russell was offensively. Um, I mean, the guy at one point I think was averaging like 28 a game was pretty much, I won't say automatic, but was one of the best mid-range shooters the game's ever seen for someone of that size. Uh, He developed more skill than what he came into the league with. Um, So I I don't think there was any real knock on him. I mean, there are things he wasn't great at for sure, and I think that maybe he was – too reluctant to kind of give up his role as the lead guy all the time. And maybe that hindered them at times. But I think that it, it was natural that they would play differently and at times better without him once he got to the age where he wasn't as effective. And I think that's obvious.
0: Yeah, yeah, two quick things off that. Number one, it was actually really interesting. I think it's in, uh, I believe the 94 or nine. no, it's the 95 series. Marv, Marv Albert is doing it. And he talks about, because this is something I'd, I'd never heard of before, he talks about Patrick having unusually small hands for his size, which is a reason for why he really struggled with ball handling and turning the ball over, because that's you know one of the things that I've always known as kind of a dark spot on his resume. He, he turned the ball over a lot, not a great passer. And you see that. He really struggles when he's – I mean, obviously, anybody's going to struggle when they're double or triple team, but that's one of the reasons where he maybe it was never you know quite at the level of a guy like Hakeem. Uh, or obviously like Kareem I mean if you can't pass out of double teams that's that's, that's that's tough but actually if looking at it, like I got to look at the measurements but if you look at his hands compared to the rest of his body they actually are like noticeably quite small it's kind of uh kind of interesting to look at and um just a really interesting detail um but then also like speaking on uh the idea of the Ewing theory it helps that you have a prime young Marcus Camby that can come on and and replace him in the starting lineup i mean if you have Chris Dudley replacing him in the starting lineup instead of, uh, you know, Marcus Camby. There's no such thing as the Ewing theory, so I just have to lead off with that a little bit. Um, Mark, I have a question for you on this. I've always been curious about this, particularly with other markets. Mm -hmm.
2: In Indiana, is it – do people feel ever that, boy, if Reggie had been more of a two-way player or if Reggie had done – I'm always curious if – I think it is kind of growing out as as sports becomes nationalized and conversations get reduced to just rings, rings, rings. Is Reggie Miller still seen as, like, we love this guy, he did everything he could for us, and, like, we wouldn't have been that close without him? Or is there ever a sentiment that, like, well, he wasn't really a two-way player and, like, he could have done a little more? Like, how is Reggie Miller viewed it now as far as what he did for the Pacers then and if people think he could have or should have done more?
0: Yeah. So prepare for a really long soliloquy. So, uh, I, I think I lean like way more towards players than I do towards teams. I think, uh, I really like looking at individuals and how they grow and how they're viewed and making sure that they're viewed fairly. Cause that's really important to me for some random ass reason. I don't know. But, uh, I think that Reggie is pretty fairly viewed by Pacers fans. I think, um, in some ways, Pacers fans can be very unfair in uh, in the way that they look at things and talk about things. Like, um, I have a lot of issues with the way that that some fans view um, the way that Paul George left and how things went down there, um, and the front office really doesn't get some blame that I believe they should. Um, regardless, you know, obviously not handled in a great way. Regardless, yes, I think uh, Reggie is very, very well viewed, um, and I, I just think it's hard to come up with arguments against him. You know. Um, I, one thing that I always thought about, uh, I first thought about Reggie, and I was like, "Well, why did it, why did he never bulk up? Why did he never get bigger to work on his isolation scoring?" And um, it makes sense when you really dig in and look. Well, I mean, he was running like eleven miles a game. I mean, he can't really bulk up. He's got to keep his stamina. Um, and I think that honestly, given his offensive load and how much he was, um, how much he was doing on offense and how much movement and motion he was part of it's hard to be a two-way contributor with that. Um, I think I always used to be somebody who was super, uh, like growing up, I was always like, you know, super hard on players. And I was like, oh, you have to, if you're not playing both ways, you know, 48 minutes a game, just locked down defense, locked in on offense, and you're not an all-time great player. And I just think that it's not fair. Um, I think there's a difference between um, pulling a James Harden on defense and uh, going all out on offense and than just being like a viable there's there's a way to be a viable contributor on defense while still being a great offensive player and I think Reggie did that um there were some times where he definitely got cooked on defense he wasn't like the most athletic player and um actually really funnily looking at this series there are a lot of comparisons between him and Alan Houston I mean I think Reggie's obviously a much better yeah, yeah. player but um and Alan did a lot more in, in isolation but Very similar, just not super athletic guys, but they did a lot off ball, um, and or maybe I don't want to say underrated, but I think it was really interesting. And actually, speaking of Allen Houston, um, he's a guy who I always knew about was not a good defender, but his defense in the '99 Eastern Conference Finals on Reggie was insanely good. Like that, I was trying to really understand why Reggie sucked in that in that Eastern Conference Finals. He shoots 36% from the field. 33% 33% from three, by far his worst playoff performance of all time. And I just have to say it's Allen Houston. Like Allen Houston was incredible on him uh, I, because I guess he just saved, you know, 15 years worth of defense for one series. But <laughs> you know, it, it works, man, because his length was just like he didn't foul him. I think he committed like one and a half fouls a game and he switched well. He just got off screens extremely well and was just determined to lock him down. And he did. And I think that's what it comes down to. And that's the large reason for why the Pacers end up losing that series.
1: That's fascinating. But I think when you, when you mention it that way, they were similar enough players. Um, like I mentioned before, I mean, the Knicks had Reggie on their short list of two guards to contribute to, the, you know, as, as free agents they were chasing in 96. And really what it came down to, they ended up deciding to approach Allen Houston and make it an offer him before they ever met with Reggie or talked with Reggie. The reason for it mostly was rooted in age. The Knicks had always been a team that was kind of getting too old. With Patrick, Oakley was getting old by that point. Starks was not young anymore. And, and Starks was not nearly consistent enough as we had seen in the, the 94 finals with the 2 for, not just the 2 for 18 performance, but I think he might have been 3 for 18 in game 1 as well. Um, and then shot lights out games 2 to 6 and really awful in game seven, costing them maybe the finals that year. Um, so they wanted a more consistent option at that two guard spot and we're very interested in Reggie. But then when it came down to this, so we want a younger option. It It's always motivating when you're playing against someone who you're compared to uh, weighed against, you know, and um, traditionally Reggie had really hurt the Knicks. And I think that, you know, it wouldn't surprise me. I haven't quite gotten to this part in my interviewing yet for my book, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all if if Van Gundy or someone else on the next staff issued a challenge to him or one of his teammates to issue a challenge to him and say, look, we, we know more often than not, you know, players get brought into a situation. They know exactly what they're coming into. They just say, look, we just need you to be consistent offensively. We need you to be that second option or kind of one A option, one B option with Patrick. Uh, we'll fill in the gaps for you on defense. We've got enough guys that are willing to do that for you. Um, but, you know, every now and then you might need to change the equation a little bit just to make sure that you can make it through a series and say, look, if you win this matchup, I can guarantee we're going to win this series. Um, and so I, it would not surprise me at all if he felt like Alan Houston was really, really a standout defensively that series. It wouldn't shock me at all if that was something that they put to him in those terms, saying, like, we need you to really give it everything you've got and really work harder than you're used to working on defense for the sake of this series.
2: And I wonder, I don't know if this would have been addressed by the team, but I know um, for a piece I did a couple weeks ago, I was reading an interview that Michael Jordan did in the early 90s where he talked about how his most difficult matchup was Rolando Blackman. And the reason he gave Ford in part was that, and and Blackman talked about um, how he he was very focused on running Jordan around screens. You've got to make him work on both sides of the floor. When Miller played Starks, Starks' focus mostly was, I'm going to defend Miller. And whatever he gives on offense is a plus. When Houston's matched up with Miller, Houston's focus is, I'm going to score. Like, I'm going to make Reg- Reggie Miller Mo- going have to stop me. And I don't think in any of the prior matchups, Miller ever had to guard a Nick who had that mentality. I wonder if that just might have taken a little more out of him. For a guy, even for all the running and stamina that he did, Houston's going to make him work more than Starks, who's going to probably just pass it into Ewing, move over a couple feet, and wait for the kickout, you know?
0: Yeah, yep. yeah, I totally agree with that. I, I definitely noticed that watching as well because um, he's like really the only guy outside. I mean, obviously, Ewing did a lot of stuff in, in isolation and posting up uh, and especially with his face-up game as well. Um, but yeah, I feel like Houston in watching all these games, the first guy who really was a consistent, consistently calling ISOs, is consistently um, having clear outs for him in order to go one-on-one with Reggie and, and it, it definitely killed him. Um, I mean, Reggie held his own as much as he could, but I think Allen shot like 46% from the floor and um, was, was really, really damn effective. I think 20 points per game, somewhere like that. Um, but that 99 conference finals and the ultimate run for the Knicks is really just intriguing to look at. I mean, obviously it's a lockout shortened year. I believe they play the regular season in like, gosh, I think it's four, four or five months and there's like a ton of back-to-backs. Um, just a crazy, crazy onslaught schedule, and it totally worked in favor for the Knicks somehow in the end. Uh, I, I believe it was that year, The um, is it the Heat that was the one seed in, yeah. in, in the lockout year? Yeah, because that's like the best Heat team that, that, that there had been previously, and the Knicks take them out in the first round, Hawks in the next round, and then take on this Pacers team. And something that really sticks out to me on this team, the 98 team was awesome for the Pacers, but then – you go to 99, and this the the defense has just notably fallen off. I believe the Pacers are ranked 24th in defense this year, which is by far their worst metric the entire time against the Knicks. And you see it. I mean, as much as I love Chris Mullen, he was great for the Pacers, and he was a great player, but he's 35 at this point, and his foot speed is just, oh, God, it's atrocious. Like, there's – he cannot hang out on the perimeter at all. And um, anytime that he was on Allen Houston or especially Latrell Sprewell, um, who – has one of the weirdest playoffs that I've I could I could possibly think of looking at him because I was I was really digging into this but I think well he doesn't start the first two series but then starts part of the conference finals and then starts the entire finals and puts up like 26 points per game and not great efficiency but still um cooks the spurs a little bit and I think uh it's just a, a really wild run. But it just shows – because the Pacers kind of re, uh, they remodel a little bit going into the next season. Um, but just a, a weird, a weird, weird season. I'm sure it was weird to, to witness and watch it you know, live a little bit for sure.
1: That year, I mean, made no sense really when you look <laughs> back at it. I mean, if we're talking about the Well, uh, the first year of Spreewells with the Knicks – Um, (laughs) I mean, that was a year where when you really look back at everything that happened, um, kind of just a a brief rundown, the team, so that's the year where it's lockout shortened Mm -hmm. to begin with. Patrick Ewing is the union president. And so because he's got that duty, he doesn't really have the time to commit to being in the gym and working out. Um, if anything, you figure he would have the best pulse on kind of when the sport was coming back, but just didn't have the time to commit to being in shape. So he was out of shape. He was already older. He was heavier. Um, and so there's that problem. The team gets out to a slow start. They've traded for Canby. They picked up, uh, Sprewell at that point. Uh, it's a very new team, but you remember they traded Oakley to get Canby, um, Van Gundy, for whatever reason, was not happy about that, probably just because he liked Oakley so much, Um, even though the trade was clearly the right one. He wasn't really on board with it as much as everyone else. So he wasn't playing Camby really as much as he should have been, considering how good a player Camby was. And so that was a constant frustration between Jeff Van Gundy and Ernie Grunfeld, who was the general manager of the team. So on the one hand, the team is underperforming, uh, for a number of reasons. Freewell gets hurt at one point. Ewing is taking a to around into shape. Camby's not really playing the minutes he should be playing. But the GM is of the opinion that, like, he hasn't had a chance to see this team fully healthy with the lineups that you would have expected when he made that trade. Um, and so there's constant infighting in the media between Grunfeld and Van Gundy. Finally, what ends up happening is that Nolan kind of comes in, steps in to talk with uh, Dave chekets the team president, and basically says, look, we, we got to – one of these guys we've got to lose, either Grunfeld or Van Gundy. You make the call on who it is. I don't care. And word of that um, kind of decision, or at least that thought process, got kind of handed down to some of the players who were in love with Jeff Van Gundy and said, you're not getting rid of him. And so then when that kind of happened, Dolan said, okay, time's up now. I'm going to make the decision for you. you got to get rid of Grunfeld. And so they fire the GM in the middle of the season and then the team goes on this run and they make the playoffs by the skin of their teeth as an eight seed, but then go to the finals. And as that was happening, as they were making this run toward the end of the season, um, the team president who I think somewhat wisely was making provisions for what would happen when they didn't achieve what they needed to was talking to Phil Jackson behind the scenes about taking over as coach after the season was over but then they went to the finals. So then it it got out that they were talking about It was just a mess. All of it was a mess. But then what came together at the end was that the team finally was healthy enough and kind of was playing can enough to where you saw the team and as a whole, kind of what Grunfeld had envisioned. And so it was crazy that he got fired for a team that had enough talent to make it to the finals. Van um, Gundy almost seemingly got fired, but then by that point had done too much to, to really deserve that by taking them to the finals, but it was just a strange year. And then Patrick obviously getting hurt again, and them not having nearly enough firepower between Patrick not being there and Larry Johnson just not being right physically to really compete with a team like the the Twin Tower Spurs. But again, when we talk about just like the Knicks always kind of just having enough but not having enough to quite get it done, uh, just another example. And you know, and I think also kind of the start of some dysfunction that we would see kind of creep into the 2000s and where we are now with the idea that they had a kind of a good thing going without recognizing it and then kind of chopped off one of their limbs. And, you know, who knows? Grunfeld obviously had the career he had with the Wizards. Um, It's not me saying that he would have lasted forever, but, like, he kind of put together a pretty good team that season. They got younger. They got some scoring. They still had the defense that they had always been known for, Um, it wasn't going to be enough to win that title, but they were on the right path. Uh, They just had to figure out at that point how to pivot away from Ewing. And that was something that they never really got a clear handle on. And I think that hurt them too, just as far as, you know, it's kind of a blemish on everybody's record that the the two sides didn't finish together. But, you know, I I think there was a lot of ego on Patrick's part. I think he was wounded by the fan base on some level and, and not always having felt like he was fully appreciated um and it, it was just a mistake and everybody realizes that now but what a weird you know that whole decade weird um completely entertaining um a team that was in the playoffs every single year which i don't think fans would give anything for now but um you know between them and the pacers there were just three rivalries i think that just stood a cut above from everything else the bulls rivalries with the knicks the pacers rivalries and those heat rivalries and uh, it often had to do especially with the 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 latter two, those teams were just so much alike with the Knicks. And uh, it, it made it a lot of fun to watch. Uh, maybe not from, like, if you're a big fan of scoring, maybe not, but as far as the fights, as far as the physicality, uh, as far as the narratives, as far as those went, um, there wasn't much better than that. And I think that the players themselves will tell you that to this
0: day. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, – uh, obviously I love the sport. I love – the game i love the x's and o's but the the narratives are what is so interesting and the storylines and and everything that feed into that and watching the growth of players and um so obviously the knicks uh lose in the next conference finals as well sorry to do that to you um pacers go on and lose to uh the one of the best postseason runs i've ever seen i think shack puts up 38 and 17 for the entire finals and um I think one of the questions I had underlying this is, and I kind of answered it myself in my head, but if these teams flop places, uh, so the 99 Pacers go to the finals and the 2000 Knicks go to the finals, uh, does either team win a finals? And I think no. Um, and I, I, I you know, I really thought about it in my head, no. I don't think that the Pacers had enough to contend with with the Spurs and the Knicks definitely would have struggled with Shaq like the Pacers did. I mean, it, especially yeah. watching, if you guys watched the 2000 Finals, um, Shaq is just on another level. Like I, I've, I mean, I've obviously watched prime LeBron my entire life and I've gone back and watched prime MJ and I'm watching him now on Sundays as well. But, uh, I think 2000 Shaq is the most dominant single force I have ever seen mm-hmm. on, on a court. It's insane.
2: I'm curious as you're asking about this Nick Pacer flip flop, um, from a Pacer fan perspective, are the nineties viewed as this kind of like golden age in their history? And if so, or even if not, I guess, I guess second question are the Knicks, like who, like for Knick fans, as, as Chris just said, the nineties have this, this triumvirate of rivalries other than the Knicks, who are the Pacers fans considering from that time? They played Chicago, I think once, I know they played Orlando twice, I believe. Um, are there other teams from that time that Pacers fans consider rivals? Is it the Knicks predominantly?
0: I think uh, I want to say, like, kind of, I mean, this tail end of the 90s is what's kind of considered the golden age of the Pacers a little bit, but then it goes into the 2000s because, um, you know, after really watching and trying to decipher this team, I think, I mean, it's it goes without, sa- without saying that the 03 04 team is by far the best team we ever had. Um, if, the, if the brawl doesn't happen, I mean, Ron Artest is playing like an MVP that season. Uh, Jermaine O'Neal is still uh, physically all there. Um, I mean, Steven Jackson was added to the team. That that team was just so talented. But this, this end of 90s run, I mean, I think the Knicks are probably uh, who would be considered the biggest rival, or the biggest narrative um, for the Pacers. I mean, you have the one series against the Bulls. Um, but I still think the series and the decade is so much more defined by all of the games with the Knicks, because I, I think the one quote that I wrote uh, <laughs> fighting for the right to lose to Michael, I think that's, that's what defines Patrick and, and Reggie for me, which maybe that's a little too concise and not fair to their legacies, but I, it's, it's what it is. I mean, that both those teams are, they're fighting for the chance to beat Michael, but nobody beats Michael. I mean, it's, it's the nineties. It just doesn't happen. Um, but, yeah, to to answer your question, I think definitely. I mean, just when I look back at history, it's the Pistons and the Knicks for sure.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think it has to be. I, um, and it's funny. Like the the more I think about it, I, I know it will always eat away at Patrick. I know it will always eat away at Reggie. I don't think there's any shame in the idea of not getting it done against the Bulls. I mean, there were there opportunities for both teams. Yes, um, the fact, and I, I've always said this, like the fact that the Knicks made it to the finals in 94 and then again in 99. So the first season after Michael retires, each of those first two times, I think that is incredibly telling on its own that the Knicks ended up in the finals right after Michael retired each time. Like you can make an argument that they would have won at least one title, if not more than that, uh, had it not been for Michael's presence in the league. Um, I I think you can at least try to make that argument with the Pacers too and some other team. Um, but I don't, you know, when we look at what we're watching with the with the Last Dance documentary, and seeing how close the Knicks were, and the, you know, the Pacers uh, were one of the few teams to take Michael to seven as well. I mean, I, I think it goes without saying that these were really good teams. Um, for whatever I don't know what it is, if maybe it's just a boredom thing with the quarantine that everybody's saying, how would this team translate? Like they
0: wouldn't. It's, it's yeah. perfectly
1: fine to ask the question, but I don't know that it matters. Like we don't have a definitive answer anyway. We're not going to get one. You can only really compare the team with the era they were in. And if they were consistently kind of a thorn in the side of Michael Jordan, whether that means they ever beat him or not is one thing. But clearly, I mean, (laughs) as I want to say Matthew was saying earlier, Michael rarely got in fights. I mean, he got in a legitimate fight with Reggie Miller. Um, He came close to blows with the Knicks uh, a number of times same thing with the Pistons. Like there was a reason for that. And there was a certain type of team that really brought the best out of Michael and statistically generally brought out the worst in him. And, you know, and I I would put the heat teams there with Riley's heat teams later, kind of in that group as well. The teams that just challenged him enough to where they made life really difficult for him. And, and were going to bruise him and, and bloody him up along the way. And, uh, So, I mean, that's where I think we we won't really see that again. Um, The closest thing we really saw to it was the Pacers uh, a few years ago against those LeBron teams. Um, And that's what I liked so much about those Pacers teams is it kind of felt like you had those agitating personalities with Lance out there. You had the guys that were not shy about the fact that they're going to knock you around like a David West. Um, You know, and you had, uh, you know, a, a a, a star wing player in Paul George. Like, it felt a little bit like those teams. Like, it's not the same. You're never going to have the same thing as what we had before. I think those are kind of the OG teams when you think about it. But um, that, I, I think subconsciously that was a big part of the reason why I enjoyed those Pacers teams so much, is that it felt like something from a previous era. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's a reason that those rivalries are what they were. And uh, it, it had a lot to do with the physicality and how much they genuinely disliked each other.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I think I really liked what you said um, about the, the recent Pacers team and mainly as well about um, just the translation of teams. I think um, it, I always say context is key. Um, you're not going to be starting Charles Smith at the three today. That's just not how teams are built. You know, Charles Smith cannot play small forward today, and that's not a knock on Charles Smith. That's the time that he played in. That's the way teams were built. Um, and, it would have been a power forward today. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can't, you can't do it like that. You can't translate it like that. And I mean, cause I've, I've talked about that with the 13, 14 pacers, like uh, people are like, Oh, well, Roy Hibbert would suck today. I'm like, well, Roy Hibbert was awesome. Then, you know, you gotta, you gotta look at that. You can't necessarily like try and look at things with a quote unquote modern view all the time. You have to look at, well, this is what was going on then. And this is why it worked. And maybe it wouldn't be the same today and you could take teams from today, and they're not going to be the same back then. You know, I mean, there, there's going to be hand checking. There's going to be more physical play and it's not to say that any error is better than the other, but it's just different, you know, and just appreciate the differences. Um, all in all, I think we covered everything pretty darn well. Uh, it was a awesome, awesome time. And I really appreciate you guys coming on. Uh, what are y'all working on right now uh, during quarantine? Stay uh, kind of not stir crazy. I had a piece dropped
2: today in um, Jacobin about the last dance. And if the Twitter reaction that I'm seeing is any indication so far, people have many feelings about when you criticize Michael Jordan about anything.
0: No way. Wouldn't so that.
2: Working on that, working on, um, at posting, we are down to the final four of um, the Bosnick moments ever going back to 1990. Um, so that's exciting. And yeah, um, Working on some, you know, creative writing stuff and just trying to generally stay um, occupied in a happy way.
1: It's awesome. It's all good stuff, man. Um, so I, you know, I've mentioned a couple times I'm working on a book about the, the 90s Knicks teams. Uh, I'm probably anywhere between like a third and uh, halfway done with writing it at this point. Um, still in the interviewing process too I've probably interviewed about 150 people for it Wow, Um, it's due later this year which no pressure Um, (laughs) but you know the quarantine um, as much as I obviously I hope everybody's you know staying safe and as healthy as they can be and that their loved ones are okay but um, I think it's helped me from a work standpoint just to have the extra time and to not have basketball being played every day every other day um, where I would have to be at a game or have to watch games to analyze and to write about. So, um, so that's been good from that standpoint, but that's, that's between that and an exercise bike that I've bought. So I wouldn't get completely, completely out of shape during yeah. all this and trying to stop my butt from feeling so sore from the exercise bike seat, which,
0: Oh yeah. You know, I got any
1: ideas for bike shorts or for, uh, I guess, pads for the bike seat, which I, I cannot get used to. These spin bike seats are horrible, mm-hmm. um, but that, those two things, those three things, and, and working still for five I've gotten back to writing on the news side, but um, but really, um, this, the book is just kind of consuming most of my time, which is fun. You know, it's not a complaint at all. It's, it's difficult. It's hard. Um, it's hard to get people to trust you sometimes even with stuff that's 30 years old, but um, but it's been so much fun. And I, you know, I, my one hope in all of it, I mean, obviously I hope it sells well. I hope people um, realize the work that's been put into it, but I really, really hope that, um, that it's enjoyable for people. And it is particularly for Nick fans, particularly for fans of the teams that are, uh, you know, that were rivals of the Knicks during those years. I think there'll be a little bit of something for everybody. Um, hopefully. I really hope that that that's how it comes across, but.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it'll be awesome, man. The working title is Blood on the Hardwood, right? Or is it something in school? Yeah,
1: yeah. For right now, it's funny. Uh, who knows whether that's what it what ended up being at the end of it. I know my editor, uh, he doesn't have strong feelings, but he, he I think he wants to title it Blood in the Garden, which I'm like, uh, <laughs> I don't know. They, they had road games too. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you <laughs> yeah. can call it. Um, but even that title, I, I don't know. I'm biased. I was the one that initially threw that one out there. But there was this story. It's It's – I think it was first told in uh, in the Jordan Rules book that Sam Smith wrote where uh, these marketing specialists came out to talk to the Knicks front office about promotional posters they were going to make ahead of the 92-93 season. Um, and they put a chalk outline inside the paint uh, on the <laughs> Madison Square Garden floor. Um, kind of, you know, and I think that suggests everything you would think it would. And Pat Riley kind of looked at him and said, I think this goes a little bit too far. (laughs) So something about that imagery and, um, you know, thinking about the stuff I told you guys before about how physical they were, all the flagrants they laid out, you know, anecdotes where I'm I'm going back through the games and watching literally three players, Paxson, Pippen, and Jordan, all having to leave the game because they're bleeding at you know, um, at the same time, it, all within the same five to ten minute span of, t- of playing time, uh, you know, and, and it was right in the midst of uh, you know Magic having retired because of HIV, so they had just implemented that rule where you had to leave the game if you were bleeding. Like that's the sort of stuff I think about with that team, and and all sorts of other things too. But the book is going to be about how they impacted the game. The, the book is going to be about how, in many cases, they left a lot of blood on the hardwood, whether it was their own or whether it was their opponents. And I think. I think it fits, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll brainstorm with more. Maybe I'll throw something on Twitter to have people kind of weigh in. And, you know, maybe they have their own suggestions. I have a friend, Jeff Perlman, who's done that with his Laker book. That's going to come out later this year about the 96 to 04 Lakers. And he opened it up. And I think somebody said three ring circus as a suggestion there. Cause they won three championships and, and it obviously was a circus. And, uh, you know that's a great title, so I can't argue with the idea of other people maybe having better ideas. So we we will maybe throw that out there. But uh, if if we had to live with blood on the hardwood, I think it would be okay. And I think that I don't know. I, I'd like to think that people can put two and two together that we're talking about the Knicks. If you walk past it on the bookshelf, you'll you'll know what it is more or less. We'll have enough cover art to where we're showcasing that it's the Knicks we're talking about. But yeah, that's the thought for right now.
0: Well, that's awesome. Guys, thank you again to everyone listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe on uh, Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you can get your podcasts. uh, Check out our work on indiecornrows.com and follow Chris and Matthew on Twitter um, and just check out the stuff. They're really great at what they do. Uh, Major thanks again for them uh, coming on and just have a good rest of your day, guys.